from that original stick of 12, five of them get out alive. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast all about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And today I'm flying somewhat solo because unfortunately Tony couldn't join us. However, I am joined in this episode by a guest, Damien Lewis. So thank you very much for joining us, Damien. Pleasure to be with you. So before we get into covering the escape, do you want to tell us a bit about what it is you do, background, how you got into writing escape books especially and uh, yeah just tell us a bit about yourself yeah sure so i was a, a war reporter for 20 years so i reported from all the kind of unpleasant and dangerous places you can imagine and largely for the bbc channel for uh, itn i was part of a of a news agency called um uh, frontline and i was largely filming and reporting my own material and because of what you know the nature of special forces training and operations Guys who've been in elite units tend to have similar skill sets to those people who work on the front line of war for obvious reasons. The same disciplines, the same kind of tactics come into play. And so I was often co-located on location with guys who were either assisting or minding or both who were from a special forces background. One of those guys, uh, now a very close friend of mine, told me about Operation Barris, the hostage rescue mission in Sierra Leone in 2000, which was carried out by the SAS. An incredible story, which I really almost never heard of before not in any detail and so trying to cut a long story short you know we worked together and I managed to write that story up as the book Operation Certain Death that was my first book about kind of elite forces operations and when you start writing about more contemporary missions you well I certainly had a hunger to learn about the origins the birth of elite forces operations that led me into World War II and the history of the SAS and related units in World War II and that's become a real theme of the kind of writing I do. Brilliant. So you've now written 30 or so mm. books on, on this subject and clearly covered a wide range of it. How is it you got into writing uh, your first book about SAS escapes? Great question. So it came about like this. I'd probably written, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe 10 World War II Special Forces books. And when you're writing a narrative history, so following a group of characters on a mission, which is the kind of books mm-hmm. I write, you come up, or I came across lots of stories of, which were not germane to the main narrative, so they weren't absolutely essential to the main story I was telling, but which were often of these incredible escapes. And so I kind of filed them away mentally in my brain, thinking, that's such a brilliant story, but I can't tell it here. And by the time I got to about a dozen of those stories, it just crossed my mind, well, why don't we do a compendium of of these incredible escape stories as a Great Escapes volume? And out of that fell the idea of SAS Great Escapes, the first book in in the series. And it really appealed to people, I think, because it was published shortly before lockdown. And lockdown was such a dark period, really, that I think people really hungered for stories of the triumph of the human spirit against adversity, overcoming incredible odds. And it just hit that moment. And I think people really resonated with it. And the other thing they really love about those escape stories is because there's seven in the first volume, six in this volume. They're episodic. You know, you can read one before going to bed at night or listen to one on a car journey. And each kind of keys you up for the next one. And all of them are such dramatic 
if you wrote them as fiction, no one would believe they are true, but they're mm-hmm. all absolutely true and well-documented. So I think people have really warmed to them for those reasons. I mean, you know, The Great Escape, the movie, resonates with people. It's got that kind of, it drills down into that legacy, but these are very much out there in the field, epic undertakings across huge distances. They're survival stories as much as escape <laughs> stories, but they're also about the ingenuity of the human mind and the absolutely dogged determination not to give up, not to give in, and no matter the odds, to get back to your brothers in arms and rejoin the fight. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, absolutely. I mean, we've said before on this podcast that these escapes don't need any embellishment because they are real life adventure stories that they just grip the imagination you know the the great escape is the sort of the touchstone for all of this wider world of escapes but it, it is quite literally a form of escapism as mm-hmm. well you know that's why it seems to really resonate with people because you get to follow the story of your heroes mm-hmm. without having to actually do it yourself mm-hmm. which uh, mm-hmm. given the high stakes that are involved in this is a win-win situation that's why we really enjoy covering these stories as well because you know they are fantastic stories and they are incredible people mm-hmm. i mean i i read uh, your book when it came out the first volume on on escapes and i think at that point we'd recorded but not yet released the Jack Byrne episode I mean was in our second series so anyone who wants to go back and listen to that and it's just a brilliant brilliant story and that that's that's in your first book and there's a couple in the second book that we have covered as well Muho the Frenchman and uh, we've also covered Vitulik and Jones as well in previous episodes all of which are fantastic and we'll actually come back to the latter of those two because they actually dropped in the same stick as the um, escaper we're going to cover in this episode but uh, before we get on to the second book there is actually an escape story linked to the first book in and of itself and that actually inspired you to write the second book do you want to tell us about that one? Yeah, I mean, just beggar's belief, the story of how I came to write the second volume. I mean, I've been collecting these stories for for years. And as you say, just about everyone you come across, if you wrote it as a fiction, no one would believe it was true, but they're absolutely, totally true and so well documented. So I've been collecting these stories and I was wondering about the second volume. And then about 18 months ago, email drops into my inbox, so via my website, and the title is Your Book Saved My Life. So... I was curious and I opened it and I expected it to be a story from a guy saying, probably about our age, saying, you know, look, I was feeling down and, you know, your stories in SAS Great Escapes of these guys, you know, achieving the most incredible things against the most unbelievable odds may put my life into perspective and maybe think things weren't so bad. And that was not what I read at all. So the story I read was about a guy called Tommy Soames, who was in his late 20s, was working as a teacher in the UK went on holiday to Montenegro, outdoor pursuits enthusiast, heard about a cave deep in the forested hills, not well explored at all, very little written about it at all, and thought, and, but heard there was an underground river there and was fascinated and decided to go and have a look. So he treks for several hours through the forest, reaches the cave, goes inside, goes a mile underground and finds the river. And it's absolutely amazing, beautiful, golden cascade deep in the catacombs of, of the Obode Caves, as they're called. So he takes some photographs, turns his phone off, enjoys the complete darkness that you can only get a mile underground, and then walks back up the tunnel to return to the forest and reaches a dead end. There's more than one way into this cave system. So he doesn't panic. He turns around, goes, retraces his steps, gets back to the river, takes another exit. After about 40 minutes of walking, it becomes too narrow to continue. It's a second dead end. So he realises then that there are at least three 
ways into the cavern in which the river is and it's now the panic starting to set in because all he has with him in terms of light is his mobile phone torch and that obviously has a finite battery life and so he hurries on the way back down again falls falls about 12 feet smashes himself up doesn't break anything but he's bloodied dirty muddied and bruised and he sits there in the darkness believing he's about to die and it's a very sobering moment as you can imagine well we can probably none of us can imagine what that must be like and so two things happen one he looks in his backpack kind of for inspiration he's got a tin of sardines a bag of raisins and he's got a book in there and it's ss great escapes which he bought on a whim at the airport he's read six of the seven chapters and he starts to think about and remember the escape stories told in the book. And he thinks if those guys can persevere against the kind of odds they face, knowing that capture would mean horrific torture and execution by the Gestapo, and they did it again and again and again, boy, I can't give up now. So he's inspired by the stories. And then the really extraordinary thing is he, he remembers the Minotaur and Ariad- Ariadne's thread and the, the, you know, the gingerbread, you know, the, 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 Hansel Hansel the way they try to escape with the uh, dropping gingerbread. And he just wonders, is there a way he can leave a trail to mark the routes he's tried but are dead ends? And so he drops the raisins on the floor of the cave, tries to shine his light on those. They, they don't show up because they're the same colour as the muddy floor of the cave. And then he sees the book and he thinks, OK, rips a page out, rips it in half, screws up half a page, drops it on the floor, shines his phone torch onto it, and it shines out like a beacon. And so he retraces his route to the river, leaving a trail of torn up pages. And he reaches the river and he looks back up the trail of torn up pages and he knows already by looking at those pages that he's tried that route. And so he does that for five, six, seven different exits, Mm. going up it till it's a dead end, leaving a trail of torn out pages from the book, retracing his step. And eventually he's down at the river again. He looks around, if you can imagine, like a clock face of all the exits. And the only place that he's not tried is between 11 and 9 o'clock. He attempts one of those exit points. And by now he's been underground for many, many hours and he's starting to kind of hallucinate and lose his sense of reality. And it's pretty damn dire. And he goes up that tunnel and he reaches a stage where he sees up ahead this kind of bizarre white amorphous shape on the wall. And he thinks it's a snowdrift because he's kind of almost hallucinating. How can there be a snowdrift? Have I been actually walking deeper underground and, and reached a frozen part? And his mind's playing really awful tricks on him, but he c- continues and he gets to that that strange white object and he realises it's the light of the cave entrance shining on the wall. And he puts his hand into the light and he thinks, the exit is here. Wow. Turns the corner, bursts into tears, cries uncontrollably, gets out of the cave, treks m- several hours back through the forest, gets back to the village, and the first villager who sees him, the place he was staying at, he's in such a state they think, he must have been attacked by a bear because there's lots of bears in the woods and actually his he, what he'd actually survived was far worse than any bear attack. And so that's the story he told me in the email. And then we subsequently made contact and spoke over Zoom and then eventually we met. And I just thought, you know, look, if that first volume saved his life, I've got to write the second volume. And so <laughs> I sat down and started work. <laughs> Fantastic, absolutely fantastic story and an escape story in its own right, but absolutely every bit as worthy as the ones that had inspired them. So you've now written the second volume, if you like, of SAS Escapes. And in this episode, we're, we're going to look at one of those in particular. It's the last one in the book, and it's the escape of an individual called Herbert Castello. It's a great story. I'm looking forward to covering it. But tell us a bit about who Herbert was, where he was from, what's his background, a bit of his personality and what he did up to the outbreak of war. Yeah, so Herbert Castello was the son of a steel worker from Stockton-on-Tees. And it's fascinating because 
his daughter, Avril, has been so helpful in, in me writing that chapter. And she said th- they'd only recently got hold of his army records and he has an extremely colourful and chequered history prior to joining the SCS. So to give you an indication, he was in the Highland Light, Light Infantry and it had been done and, you know, subjected to things like 87 days in detention, weeks and weeks without pay, close arrests several times. So he was a real bad boy, mm-hmm. you know, a real spirited bad boy. And I'll give, you, I'll give you an indication of the kind of thing he got up to. And you can kind of understand why he did this, but it didn't go down well. So his first and only son was born whilst he was during the war, whilst he was in the Highland Light Infantry. And he was in the UK at the time. And his son became very ill. And so he absconded, went absent without leave, went home to be with his wife, who was mm-hmm. nursing their, actually their dying child. And you can understand why a father would do that. You're a father, I'm a father. Mm. It's it's natural to do that. But however, the military police turned up at his house. They turned up at the front door, rapping on the front door. He got out the back door, ran to the railway station with them in hot pursuit. There was a train leaving the station to get away from the MPs. He ran along the station, jumped on the roof of the train, and the train steamed off with him on the roof of it, and he (laughs) left the MPs behind. Now, of course, he got away from them, but, you know, he didn't escape the the ramifications. That was typical of Herbert Castelo. And you could argue that in any other unit other than the SAS, his high spirits and high jinks and his, you know, very short guy, like like five foot five, no taller than that, Not, not well built, but hard as nails. Mm-hmm. And in any other unit, perhaps, he would not have been very much appreciated. But when he volunteered for the SAS, which he did in early 1944, so when they were getting ready for the post-E-Day operations, he did so hungering not just to fight, but to get into a unit where perhaps discipline was less imposed from on high, but more imposed from within, which was much more the kind of discipline that he could relate to, and which also would enable him to go out there and do what he hungered to do, which was to fight. Mm-hmm. You say he was in the Highland Light Infantry, so what, what was his service like? Was he in the army before the outbreak no. of war? Or? No, he signed up shortly after the outbreak of war. He, he, he stepped forward and, and volunteered, uh, as he volunteered for the SAS, obviously. He'd not deployed on any, on any operations, but he'd been through any number of training courses. So he did a gas training course, he did a vehicle maintenance training course, actually very important for what happened during his escape. He'd been on motorcycle courier driving courses, so he he was very well qualified. And actually, Actually, if you read the reports from his commanding officers, he was very well respected as a soldier, although they knew of his record of ill discipline. It's that strange kind of thing. He was a great soldier, mm-hmm. but not great at adhering to discipline when he didn't agree with what the discipline was, was trying to get him to do. It's not wholly dissimilar to Paddy Main. Well, absolutely. Some might say that. <laughs> absolutely, because Main held this man in very high regard. Interesting. Yeah. Great. So you say he's volunteered at the outbreak of war. He went through a number of training courses, but never was on the front line. Yeah. Well, when was it he volunteered? In there? Volunteered around about February 44 or stepped forward to volunteer. In fact, he volunteered, as they all did, for special service. Now, when you step forward as a volunteer for special service, you do not know what unit you're volunteering for. Mm-hmm. You're just volunteering for hazardous duties. Okay. So for argument's sake, he could have gone into any elite unit but he was put forward for the SAS right so he volunteered in around about February 1944 yeah. as you just said he was put forward for the SAS mm. and ended up joining them just before D-Day and and that is crucial to his entire story yes tell us about the mission that he was due to be on so there were three missions that that Castello um, was scheduled to undertake post D-Day the first they he and his 12 person patrol commanded by Captain Garstin 
who was a fantastic character, and, and Lieutenant Vihey is his, his second in command. So the first mission they were scheduled to go on shortly after D-Day, they fly in on, on a Sterling aircraft and they can't locate the drop zone. So under terrible fire, they then return to the UK, crash land basically on getting back to the UK because the aircraft has been badly shot up by the enemy. And pretty much immediately they sent around on their second operation. That's very successful. And during that mission, they parachute in and they attack a German locomotive steaming to the Normandy beaches full of reinforcements for the German military. And their mission, like all the SAS missions at the time, is to stop the reinforcements getting to Normandy to stop driving the Allies back into the sea. That was the SAS's overriding mission. But the fascinating thing about that operation is they escape from Etampes Air Base, which is a Germ- which was a German-occupied airbase, you know, mm. a Luftwaffe airbase, mm-hmm. and they managed to break onto the airbase. An RAF plane flies in, plucks them out of there by landing brazenly with its lights on, and they jump on the plane under fire, and they get away. So it's a really incredible escape. But they get back to the UK, and Paddy Main calls them in and says, right, guys, you're deploying again in 48 hours, and you're deploying because of two reasons. One... You've just been in in a Tomps airbase, so you know it back to front. And two, that is where the Luftwaffe are basing their first ME-262 squadron, so Mm. the German jet fighter, the the newly, you know, the the Wunderwaffe that was supposed to turn the, one of the things that was supposed to turn the tide of the conflict in the Nazis' favour. So their mission was to drop back into the airbase they just escaped from, rather not drop into the airbase. They were dropping on a a, a drop zone at La Fertele nearby. And then to obviously infiltrate into the airbase and blow up those warplanes. That was their mission. You could argue pretty much a suicide mission because they'd already been in there once, caused a massive stink and got out by the skin of their teeth and now they're being sent back in. But in typical Paddy Main fashion and typifying those 12 men on that patrol, they turn around. They, I think they sink a couple of barrels of beer in the interim and then they get back on the aircraft and they fly in to drop into La Ferte LA drop zone You know, shortly after coming out the first time. So as you say, in in many ways, an absolute suicide mission because you've effectively woken up the enemy and they're ready and waiting for you. So what actually happened on the mission? So very, very rarely did an SAS patrol drop into France post D-Day on these operations without some kind of liaison with the French resistance. Generally, they had a reception party from the French resistance waiting on the ground. And the reason behind that was a lot of this was to link up with the French resistance as a force multiplier. And it's pretty obvious why you do that. And most of that liaison was organised by the Special Operations Executive, Churchill's Ministry for Ungentlemanly Warfare. Unfortunately, the SOE, great organisation, but not particularly rigorous about their security protocols in the run-up to D-Day. So what I'm trying to say politely was they had been penetrated, or rather SOE cells on the ground in France had been penetrated pretty widely by the Gestapo. And what the Gestapo were doing very smartly from their Avenue Foch base in, in, in Paris is they are running what they called the Funkspiel operations. Funkspiel is radio games. And the radio games were, they would capture an SOE radio operator. They would capture his radio kit, if they could, in his code books. Then they would take the place of the SOE radio operator as if they were that person Mm -hmm. and continue to send reports to SOE as if they were that radio operator, trying to get SOE headquarters to believe their agent was still active in the field, to call in further drops, which they could then stake out the drop zone and capture the live agents or the special operators who dropped in all the equipment. And they were very good at it. Mm -hmm. A lot of men and material was captured, and money, for example, and weaponry. 
and Gaston and Castelo's patrol was codenamed Savvy 70. And in their instant, their SOE contact on the ground had been subjected to a Funkspiel operation. And so they dropped into an ambush. The drop zone itself had been staked out by the Gestapo and the SS with Waffen-SS troops. And the first man down, Captain Gaston, who was a, a real hero of the story, he, he, he insisted when first, first out of the aircraft, the first man down is not met by the French resistance. He's met by the enemy. Mm-hmm. And so Castelo is actually number 12 in the, in the stick. He's the last man out of the aircraft. So as he jumps, he can see all the other parachutes below him. He can see the first guys hit the ground, and then he can hear and see the muzzle flashes of the gunfire, and he realises that bad stuff is happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so he manages to steer his parachute as far as he can on his glide and gets into the woodland. And as far as he knows, he's the only man to escape that ambush without being captured or killed. Yes, uh, picking up quickly on the Funkspiel, anyone who's read Leo Marx between Silk and Cyanide on the rigours or lack thereof of the SOE and its communications is, I I personally believe it's one of the most enjoyable books. It is tragically sad in many ways, but it is also one of the most fascinating and brilliantly written books that I've read, certainly on SOE. I just think very, very well written. It's a great book. It is. It's so... And his poem... Yes. The life that I have. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's uh, such a wonderfully written poem. Unbelievable. Yeah. So having managed to steer himself away from the drop zone where the Gestapo are sitting and waiting for him along with the SAS and so far as he's aware the other 11 men on his stick are, are captured, having managed to steer himself away from that, what happened next? You know, he linked up with the resistance but how, how did he end up linking up with them? Castelo's on his own, he doesn't speak any French, he realises they've been betrayed. So for all he knows, it could be the French resistance that have betrayed them. So there's no one he can trust. Doesn't think, how can he break cover? He certainly can't go and approach any of the locals because they could be the people who betrayed them. So he hides out, lies low in the forest for 24 hours. And then there's an old lady out collecting wood from the local village. And he believes that she hasn't seen him. Of course she has. She doesn't miss a thing. She's seen him realises that she can't approach him. So she goes back to her village and then goes to the neighbouring village, which is called Vert le Petit, because there is a chap called Michel Le Duc, who is the local resistance leader. He's actually the local butcher as well. And she tells Le Duc what she's seen, and Le Duc gets on his bike, cycles to the woodland, and there's this kind of bizarre standoff between the French resistance leader and Castelo, because Castelo doesn't trust this guy one inch, and somehow they manage to make themselves understood, and eventually Castelo starts to drop his guard and accept that this guy's trying to help him. And Le Duc manages to make him understand, look, stay here, lie low for another few hours, I will come back. I'll come back with a means to get you back to Petit, my village, and you know that will be where you'll have to lie low and hide out. And so Le Duc goes back to his village, grabs a big voluminous cycle cape, returns to the forest, gets Castelo, who, remember, is a small guy, perches him on the handlebars, covers the two of them in the cape. Most of Castelo's kit has to be abandoned because it's too much to carry, and cycles back to his village through all the enemy checkpoints that have been set up because the enemy know... Some of them, three of them haven't been captured, in fact. So they're still searching for them. And the way he gets through those checkpoints, because he's a local butcher, not only is he a butcher of Verla Petit, but also he supplies the local German garrison. In fact, he even supplies a Tombeir base with meat. And so the Germans see him as the trusted jolly-faced butcher, Mm -hmm. and they wave him through. And that's how he gets Castelo back to the village. And then he thinks, well, what can we do with him? And he thinks there's no way in a village this small where everybody knows everybody, that people won't know he's here. So we have to pretend that he's a family member and he's going to have to hide in plain sight like he has every right to be here. So he becomes the family's long-lost nephew. 
And then they think, well, how do we explain the fact he can't speak French? And so they basically just decide that he has to have a terribly bad stutter and basically is almost unable to talk. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he's kept for a week and he's kind of interrogated by the local English teacher, the English teacher in the village. And eventually she gives the thumbs up and says, yes, he is who he says he is. And then he is hiding in plain sight. He's in the butcher shop when the Germans come in to buy their meat. He shakes their hands and mm. they explain that he can't speak French because he's got this terrible stutter he can't really speak at all. And every time the Germans come in he's forced to shake hands with them. When they leave he goes and washes his hands and the first thing he asks Le Duc is when do I get the chance to start killing them? Because being serious for a moment the wonderful thing about Herbert Castellet's escape story is it's not an escape story. Mm. It's a story about how do I stay here and get vengeance for my 11 colleagues that have been betrayed and killed. And as he subsequently learns, even worse, those who've been captured, which is the majority of them, who are then taken to the Avenue Fock, are tortured and then driven to a woodland and shot in cold blood. And when he learns all that, his hunger for vengeance knows no bounds. So his escape story isn't really an escape story. It's a story about how do I not escape and stay here and first of all fight with the French resistance to get vengeance Mm. and then go on to fight pretty much on my own on a one-man mission of getting vengeance for my comrades. That's what makes it so extraordinary. Absolutely. So we've we've got him in this butcher shop with this supposed terrible stammer and he's looking to hang around in the area i mean you know the sas are trained to be behind enemy lines that is the definition of what they do so this isn't in and of itself a concerning scenario for him you know this is what he's been trained to do but how he uses his expertise and skills and if i remember correct the duke has to negotiate him away from going out on a killing yeah, spree absolutely yeah yeah castle is determined to go out and because there's two gestapo agents posted in the village mm-hmm. and he knows it's the gestapo who have you know staked out the drop zone so he's determined to go out and kill them and the duke says look you can kill them but just hold off doing so until i say it's okay because if you kill them now the reprisals on this village will mean everyone here will suffer terribly and castle says absolutely fine so what he does instead is Leduc's obviously active as a running his resistance cell and they are sabotaging German transport they're going to the airbase attacking the airbase all the things that Castelo and his patrol were sent in to do so he goes out and joins the French resistance on these nighttime sabotage operations. And that's where he invests most of his energy in the short term. And then Le Duc has a mission to go on to Paris. So he and one of his cousins are cycling to Paris on an intelligence gathering operation. And it's fascinating because, try and get your head around this. So he's, obviously he's now dressed in civilian clothes. He's got a forged French ID card with a name slightly different from his real name. and but, but most of his particulars are very close to his real particulars, which is what you do when you want to create a plausible false identity. And on it, he says in French, very bad stutter can hardly speak. But that's all he's got. It's a thin veneer, and busting through that veneer would not be difficult for someone who was suspicious. So Le Duc and his cousin are off to Paris. They're cycling to Paris, not that far away. And Castellet says, I'm coming with you. And they say, why? I mean, no. <laughs> and, and Le Duc actually says of him... For a man who's just escaped, had such a terrible brush with death, his hunger for, you know, near-death experiences, for pushing the envelope, for trying to take the fight to the enemy, knew no bounds. And that's one of the things that really impressed him about him. So they set off cycling to Paris. The extraordinary thing is, the really kind of darkly amusing thing is, because he's used to cycling on one side of the road, Mm. our side of the road, and the French cycle on the other side of the road, the Duke has to cycle on one side, (laughs) his cousin on the other, with Castellet sandwiched in the middle, to make sure he doesn't move to the wrong side of the road. And to give you an indication of how, in the face of the enemy, Castellet is, when they get to the Sacré-Cœur, the famous church in, in, in France... He sees a bunch of German soldiers like standing guard on the steps 
And he says to Le Duc, you are going to take my photograph. And he goes up and he stands right next to these German soldiers with a big grin on his face, posing there for the photograph, saying, get me with the soldiers. And Le Duc goes up and takes the photographs. And this was his great foil, actually. It was his ability to laugh in the face of danger because mm. who of those German troops would have thought he would be a, an SAS parachutist when he's standing there laughing his head off saying, take my photograph. Mm. And that went to the nature of his character. That's why he was such an extraordinary individual. He had this undying sense of joie de vivre and upbeat spirits no matter what position he found himself or how dire the circumstances were. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, it's perfectly clear, if only by volunteering to join the SAS, that he had guts, let's put it that way, but to be willing to go up and have your photograph taken next to a group of German soldiers really does show an extraordinary level of bravado. So how long was he working with Le Duc in the French Resistance? Because he was ultimately captured. Yeah, so he's there for several weeks. And of course, the German lines are being driven back. The Allies are advancing and they're getting nearer and nearer and nearer. And eventually, Le Duc's getting phone calls from the American forces who are the nearest and that he's passing across vital information. And eventually he says to Castello, because what's happened is they've been denounced by someone in the village. And the person who's denounced them has done so in a letter sent to the local Gestapo agents. But the postman's pro-resistance and he's intercepted the letter. So he's given Le Duc a few hours warning. And Duke comes to Castel and says, we have to get out of here. They're going to do a cordon search and we're going to be captured if we don't leave. And so he said, we're going to have to split up. But the one thing I can do for you before we leave is I've persuaded the local gendarme, so the local French policeman, to give me his spare gendarme uniform. Uh, you've got a bike, you've got a gendarme's uniform as a, as a disguise and you need to cycle to the nearest British lines. And Castler then says, OK, but before I go, do I have the permission now to go and kill those two Gestapo agents? And the Duke says, of course you do. So he cycles off, lures these two Gestapo agents to a nearby lake, kills them both with a knife, and it's actually a butcher shop knife because his commando dagger, you, that's something you can't carry around mm-hmm. because it's such a signature of who you are. And then he buries the body or drops the bodies in the lake and then he cycles off on his push bike dressed in his gendarme's uniform to reach British lines. And he's halfway towards that area and stops for a pee, as you do, parks his bike by the roadside, has a pee behind the edge, comes back and someone's stolen his bike. And in typical Castello fashion, this again is exactly so in keeping with his character, he sees his bike's been stolen and starts swearing in English. And there's a German patrol passing and they hear him swearing in English, and they arrest him. And then he's about to be shot as a spy. And because obviously he's wearing a gendarme uniform, I mean, you know, how do you explain that one? And luckily, fortunately, the the officer of that unit says, no, no, we're not going to shoot him as a spy. We're going to hand him over to the Gestapo, and they're going to find out who he really is. And so he's handed over. And he is subjected to horrendous torture. And again, let's just pause for a moment and pay tribute to who this guy was. Because, yeah, he'd been a wild one in his previous service. But get this... He's tortured for days and days on end. And and I'll give you an indication how bad the torture was. His daughter, Avril, told me that her father never spoke about the war, ever. Except every full moon, he would have a nightmare because they would parachute in on the full moon. And he would wake up screaming and in sweats. And because she was the youngest of four girls, she would go and mop his brow and make it better for him. And then she'd see a scar on his body and say, Daddy, what's that? And it's the only time he ever talked about it. And they had these scars all over his chest. And he would say, that's where they tortured me with electrodes. And the point about this is, he's tortured for days and days and days on end. And he never tells them who he really is. Mm. But more importantly, he never gives away any of those in the French resistance who've hidden him, helped him. I mean, absolutely extraordinary fortitude and courage and bravery beyond measure. And eventually, you know, they've still not broken Herbert Castello. They still don't know who he is, but they're not letting him go. So they they pack him on a truck 
and they're driving him towards Metz on the French-German border to take him into Germany. He knows if he crosses that border and goes into the fatherland, he's done for. Mm. He's destined to Buchenwald or somewhere, and no one ever escapes from those places. And so he knows he has to break out. And, of course, as far as they're concerned, the Gestapo, the SS... He's this bro, small, broken man. That's what he looks like. That's the impression he's trying to give. And so they get to Metz and he's put in, in a room that evening with one guard, one SS guard. And at 12 o'clock at night, the SS guard nods off to sleep and Castello kills him, steals his rifle, walks out of the detention centre, treks to the Mosel, the eastern bank of the Mosel River, swims the Mosel River, gets to the western bank where the American forces are, makes himself known to the American forces. And then, because you would imagine it be at that stage, well, and now can you get take me to the British so I can go home? No, 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 no. Herbert Castle says, you've had a problem crossing the Moselle because the Americans have been fighting to try to bridge the Moselle for days on end. It's been a very bloody and costly battle. And Herbert Castle says, I've just been through all that area. I have just escaped from that area. So he then joins the American 5th Reconnaissance Unit, their own frontline reconnaissance outfit, mm. to help guide them across the Moselle and establish the bridgehead. And he carries on serving with that American, the 5th Recon Unit, until it seems like he's injured. And I said, say, seems like, because the extraordinary thing is, and I've never come across this, in, 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 I'm interested in if you have actually, with all the escape stories you've studied. So eventually, obviously the Americans cross the Moselle and, and they establish their bridgehead and Metz is about to be taken. And then Herbert Castle is sent to Paris and he's flown back to the UK. So what an aircraft is made available to fly him from Paris to the UK, that never happens. You know, what normally happens, you put him on a truck, you take him to the docks and you jump on whatever ship is available. And, and he did have a bullet wound that he showed his daughter. So we're pretty certain that he had been shot during that time with the Americans and he was medically evacuated. And indeed, if you look at the papers, which I've studied, of that evacuation by aircraft, he sent back for a compelling reason of intelligence. So I also think he had intelligence to take back to the British. And then we get to the point of Paddy Main, because you could argue, and I think many, many units would have argued, and many commanding officers would have argued, perhaps, that he had been AWOL, fighting with foreign forces for a long time, because mm. he'd been fighting with the French and then the Americans. Paddy Main welcomes him back into the SAS once he's fit enough again, and not only that, but writes him up for a military cross. And the point about it is, very shortly after the war ends, I mean, it's like in the, in the autumn of 1945, Paddy Main's giving a speech in Northern Ireland, which is where Maine is from. And he tells probably two or three stories of standout SAS operators during the war. Doesn't name him, but one of them is Herbert Castello's story. And he specifically talks about his butcher shop escape and how extraordinary it was that he carried on fighting in the spirit of the SAS, trying to avenge his comrades for all those weeks that he was in the field. I mean, that's incredible in, in its own right. To to be singled out by someone like Paddy Maine is recognition in itself and to then be recommended for a military cross, which I assume he got. He got the military cross. Yeah. And of course, after getting the MC, he then rejoins the unit and he fights all the way through to the end of the war with the SAS across France and into, in, into Germany. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier we would come back to Vitrulic and Jones because as far as Castle was aware, his 11 mates had been captured, tortured, and shot in the firing squad. As we know, that was actually not the case because, can't remember the details of all of them, but we know for two, for definite, actually escaped from that firing squad. And it's it's the episode of Vitrulic and Jones that we cover in episode nine of series four. So not only was he on the same drop as them, but we, we know that there was yet another two escapers from that 12. So it was clearly, if nothing else, a remarkable group of 12. You know, Garstan was an incredible man himself and went to his death with 
incredible dignity if nothing else and the way they were treated was appalling but it's absolutely incredible and fascinating to see that two of the most extraordinary escapes came from this one single mission and in many ways great that two two of his mates did survive and, and got away from in their own right an appalling situation yeah. yeah absolutely i mean obviously castello wouldn't have known that because the intelligence no. that came back to verla petit via le duc's resistance network was that those who had been captured and taken to the avenue fork had all been killed in that, that patch of woodland where they were taken to by the Gestapo and the SS and faced the firing squad. Of course, when Kastler get, gets back to the UK, eventually, 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 it's been a long sojourn fighting all the way. He then realises, of course, that, that not only have Vachelik and Jones escaped, that they escaped from the very guns of the firing squad. Mm-hmm. And as you say, Captain Garstin, incredibly brave. What a man, what an mm. individual. He says, I will stand firm to take the fire. You break away. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, he gives his life for those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, not only do those two escape and get away and then fight with the resistance and get back to the UK as well, but of course, Morris and one other had also escaped. So from that original stick of 12, actually five of them get out alive, mm-hmm. which is quite unbelievable considering what they faced. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the odds of one of them getting away from that scenario was slim to none. So for five of them, it, it's just an incredible feat yeah. to overcome the odds. And yeah. if anything is reflective of not just the individuals, but the, the quality of the the individuals within the SAS and, Absolutely. and the the metal of the regiment. There's yeah, no uh, question of that. And bear in mind, you know, Hitler's commander order, you know, his execution order that all special forces or SOE or parachutists, you know, are to be kept alive only for long enough to be interrogated by the SS and the Gestapo and then shot out of hand. It's a murder order. Mm. You know, that's been in, in place since, since October 42, although we didn't know about it until probably late 43, early 44, but it's been in place for a very long time. And actually, when D-Day happens, you know, Hitler's, some of Hitler's senior commanders go to him and say, look, can you rescind the command order? Because we're having parachutes drop all over the place. And he says, no, not only am I not going to rescind it, but I'm going to reinforce it. So he issues the addendum to the command order, which is even more draconian. So not only are they facing the betrayal and being ambushed and all the rest of it, but, but even when they're captured, they are under an execution order anyway. So mm-hmm. to escape for five of them, almost half of the patrol, to escape from those kind of circumstances is beggar's belief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You said the castle rejoined the SAS and fought until the end of the war. What what happened after the end of the war? What 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 happened to him then? What's his story yeah, for the rest a, of his life? Fascinating, great question. Fascinating story and and really very poignant. So Castello returns home to his family, to his wife and his daughters. He ends up having three daughters, and he goes straight back to what he was doing in civilian life. He goes back to being a painter and decorator, and he never talks about the war. When he gets the letter from the king to go down to Buckingham Palace to get his military cross, he refuses, so that so the medal has to be sent to him. And he says to his, his family, I, I'm not worthy, I didn't do anything special. I don't even understand why I'm getting the decoration. So he was one of those incredibly self-effacing, modest individuals, but actually, truth be told, plagued by the trauma. Mm-hmm. That's why he never spoke about the war. And until his dying day, survivor's guilt was there. Mm-hmm. He's one of the ones that actually did survive. Many of his friends did not. Why him? So tribute to a family man, a man who was determined to provide for his family despite all the traumas he'd been through, and an individual who had really pushed the envelope of what we should all appreciate so much was that sacrifice so many of them gave for our freedoms. That, you know that that sounds trite, but it's not at mm-hmm. all. That's the truth. We have freedoms today because people like Herbert Castle went into the field and carried out horrific, gruesome tasks time and time and time 
and time again, you know, on back-to-back missions, and that should never be forgotten. And the dark legacy of what they went through, many of them lived for the rest of their lives. And many of them didn't live very long lives because they were so plagued by what they had been through, they just couldn't find the spirit to endure. Thankfully, Castello did, and I think that's really down to his family. He was an incredibly strong, protective family man, and some of the stories his daughter, Avril, told me about the funny, protective ways he was about his daughter, because he was a hard man. Mm. I wouldn't want to be his son-in-law. <laughs> you don't. No, I think there was one time where a would-be paramour was shinning up a drainpipe, and got to the top of the drainpipe, opened the window, and there was Herbert Castle basically saying, Sonny, you better go back down that drainpipe, otherwise <laughs> you're in serious trouble. No, no, no one ever messed with Herbert Castle after the no. war. So yeah, he was, a, he was a really lovely family man, but a very, very tortured by what had been through. And actually, he was invited to rejoin the SAS, of course, when it was reformed in you know, the early 50s. And um, he basically said, I've done my soldiering. Fair enough. Who can blame him? Mm. How, how long did he survive for? He, he didn't live. He didn't live to a grand old age. He got diabetes very badly, and that's what eventually he died from. But he pretty much refused to go and get treated. You know, in that way that some of that generation just wouldn't, and so he died in his early sixties. And actually, you know, when I spoke to his daughters, it's like I suppose in a way that. Would he have ever spoken about the war? Because obviously they all wanted to know so much more. Maybe he would never have done, but had he lived to a grand old age, maybe in time he would have mellowed and maybe he would have spoken more about it. Uh, One of the lovely things about writing that chapter of the book was that Avril said to me, I have learnt so much about my father from reading what you've written and from your research, and it's just brought him back to me. And you go on a very emotional journey with these families, and that's what makes, you know, telling these stories special. It's an absolute delight and a pleasure to be able to tell his story on this podcast. He's definitely been someone we've been wanting to cover for some time and I'm delighted we could cover his story with you. So thank you very much. And of course, you've got another book coming out, SAS Forged in Hell, which you very kindly agreed to allow me to give a reading, an excerpt from it. So this is from SAS Forged in Hell. On the 9th of September 1943... Second SAS had deployed en masse with their heavily armed jeeps, landing at Taranto on the heel of Italy along with the main Allied forces. Once ashore, their task was to chase after the enemy, probe their frontline positions and help the main army beat a path through. First into action had been the unit's overall commander, the wonderfully named Major Oswald Aloysius Joseph Carriellis. As noted in the SAS War Diary, Carriellis's jeep patrol ran into an enemy section, killed three and took three prisoners without suffering casualties. In the war diary, there is a map of 2nd SAS operations titled portentously 2nd SAS Regiment in Italy from Taranto to Termoli. Farron had just completed that epic route some 300 kilometres long in 25 days of hectic driving intermixed with combat. Along the way, some quite spectacular battles had been fought and some rather unorthodox missions undertaken. One patrol in 2nd SAS, the so-called French Squadron, was made up entirely of former French Foreign Legion troops, being commanded by the inimitable Captain Jack William Raymond Lee. Lee was in truth one Raymond Kuro, former Foreign Legionnaire turned Marseille gangster turned Special Operations Executive Agent and most recently SAS Commander. It was during his stint in the SOE that Kuro had been obliged to change his name to Lee, especially after he had been deployed on the March 1942 raid on Saint-Nazaire Operation Chariot, during which he had been shot in both legs and almost given up for dead. Part of 2nd SAS's covert remit in Italy was to engineer the rescue of escaped Allied prisoners of war, thousands having fled from the prison camps once the Italian armistice had been declared. Mostly they were hiding out in the mountains, and with the onset of winter, conditions were turning dire. Carrie Elwes and Kuro 
had struck the first blow in those POW rescue operations, and with unbelievable dash and panache. On the 12th September, 2nd SAS had seized Kiatona railway station line some 20 kilometres to the west of Toronto. There a special train was assembled, manned by the French squadron, plus a troop of British SAS together with an Italian officer. By then, of course, the Italian armistice was several days old, so the colonel and the SAS were now on the same site. As Carrie Ellis would remark, driving a locomotive was one of the skills we had learned in the course of SAS training, though perhaps none had, had never done so with a mission such as this in mind. The train that Carrie Ellis had ordered into action prepared to depart Kiatona bristling with weaponry. It also carried a Polish airborne officer for a very particular reason. On the 13th of September it set forth, steaming west into enemy country, making for a distant concentration camp that was crammed full of prisoners, a number of whom were Polish. Just as in Nazi Germany, a network of such camps had been strung across fascist Italy where the enemies of the state were incarcerated amid inhuman conditions. Situated some 80 kilometres inside German-occupied territory and boasting a guard force commanded by the Italian fascist colonel, the camp at distant Pasticci was the train's planned destination. That was if it made it through. As the war train had gathered pace and steamed westward, at one of the key crossroads Major Carriellis stood guard with a patrol of SAS jeeps. Determined to hold the junction and adjacent railway crossings against all adversaries. In that he had succeeded, the special train steaming through unmolested. On the 14th of September it reached the Pasticci camp unscathed. Upon arrival the SAS had struck by surprise bursting out of the train and overpowering the camp guards, before springing free 180 prisoners of mixed nationalities. Having loaded the former captives aboard the carriages, the war train had steamed back towards Kiatona going like the clappers, with Carrie Alwis and his jeep patrol still standing guard to ensure their safe return. They even brought with them the fascist commandant of Pasticci camp as a bonus prize. Simply incredible. What a fantastic excerpt from your new book, SAS Forest in Hell, and it involves a, an escape as well, which of course we, uh, for you the wars over, absolutely love. But thank you so much for letting us share that. So your new book is out, SAS Forest in Hell, or to give it its full title, SAS Forest in Hell, From Desert Rats to Dogs of War, The Mavericks Who Made the SAS. So the book looks at the incredible men that established, created, developed, and enshrined, almost in myth, the SAS, and it looks like a wonderful book. I'm hugely looking forward to reading it when I get the chance. So, returning to your book, SAS Great Escapes 2, it is now out. It came out late May. People really like, I think we need these uplifting stories at the moment. It costs a living crisis, people are finding it a bit hard. This, these are the stories we need to read. Mm-hmm. We need to read about the triumph of the human spirit in tough times. Absolutely. And having now read both your Great Escape books, I can thoroughly recommend both. And uh, so please, if, if you're listening, please do go out and, and buy Damien's books. All, all of them, there, there are 30 to choose from, but uh, we are obviously slightly biased towards the escape stories. So please, in particular, go out and, and uh, purchase those two books because they are a fantastic read. The stories within them are just incredible. And I mean, if you haven't got got a feel for that from Castle's story alone, there's, you know, there's another 12 across the two books to to look at and uh, as I say, said before we've got the likes of Byron Muho, uh, Serge Fatulik and Jones and th- just incredible stories I mean these are just exemplars of the of the wider uh, stories that are told in there so please uh, give them a read. The only thing left to say really is thank you so much Damien for joining us and for sharing that story with us. I no really it's been a pleasure, it. absolute pleasure, always good to be uh, talking about these uh, incredible stories of you know daring do and the triumph of the human spirit. Absolutely, thank you very much.
Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.